All right, if you have your Bibles, turn over with me to Acts chapter 9, verses 1 to 20. We're going to look at today as we continue on in our People of God uh, series here this fall, going through some of the, the key chapters and moments of that early church found in Acts and the things that they have to teach us about who we are and uh, what our purpose really is as church and as Christians out in the world today. And so Acts 9, 1 to 20, great chapter. It says this, Meanwhile, Saul was still murdering or still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found anyone there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners back to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground, and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now get up and go to the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord said, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Ananias went to the house and he entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. And at once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. My wife and I have really liked the TV series, The Chosen, uh, which is about Jesus and his disciples. And one of my favorite quotes from that TV series is from Mary Magdalene. She was confronted in one of the first episodes by Pharisee Nicodemus, who had only previously seen her in her darkness and chains and and now was seeing her completely changed and set free. And he is confused about the difference and wondering what happened and how. 
And Mary said, all I know is that I was one way. Now I'm completely different. And the thing that happened in between is him. The miraculous 180 conversion of Saul is one of the most important events in the life of the church. What God did to open his eyes and turn this guy completely around. Saul left Jerusalem one way and returned completely different. And the one thing that happened in between was the same as it was for Mary Magdalene. It was Jesus. Saul had a real encounter with the risen Lord. And it changed him completely and forever. This past week, Carrie and I had the chance to get away for three days. It was a pastor-spouse retreat in Estes Park, Colorado. I grew up in Colorado. I have been to Estes a number of times. I always look forward to seeing the mountains again and being out in nature. Well, we were driving there, and we left our house Sunday afternoon, and we drove eight hours to get there, so we were there Sunday later in the night. But when we got there, it was completely dark, as you would expect, because it was later. And this was an interesting experience for me, because I was driving, and when we got to Loveland, right at the front range, the base there of the mountains, I knew there were mountains all around us, but I couldn't see any. All I could see was darkness. We then took Highway 34 from Loveland to Estes, and it's a very pretty and majestic 45-minute drive through these deep canyons and up this mountain pass. But again, it's nighttime, and I cannot see any mountain in front of me. If I didn't know where I was, I would have not known that I was driving through all of this stuff. It'd be just a road. At times, I, I got a quick little glimpse off of my headlights of a stone wall as we would go around it, but that was it. We get to Estes, we pull into the YMCA of the Rockies where we were staying, and again, we are in the center of the Rocky Mountains, in the Rocky Mountain National Park. But all I can see is darkness. We're tired, so we go to our room and go to bed. I wake up in the morning. I pull back the curtains. The sun has come up. Light is now shining. And everything I couldn't see yesterday, I can now see today. I am surrounded by the incredible Rocky Mountains and these beautiful aspen trees and pine trees and streams and canyons. They, they were all there before. But the difference is, I now can see them because the sun came up. The light now shines on all that is. This is what spiritually happened to Saul. Saul was a guy who we learn in, in Philippians was a man of great knowledge. He studied under the best of the best teacher named Gamaliel. He was a Pharisee, which meant he knew the law 
by memory and heart. He could recite for you the whole Torah without even looking at it. He spent his whole day trying to know God and be righteous before God. He was born a Jew from the elite tribe of Benjamin. And more than any other person, I would say, at that time, in that Bible time, he was zealous to stop the disciples who spoke about Jesus. Why? Because he saw the disciples' message as a lie, as deceptive, as dangerous and destructive and leading his people astray. So passionate he was about this and so certain that he was right. He went from house to house, it says in the book of Acts, to arrest anybody who was preaching about this Jesus. In our chapter, he had gotten permission to now go beyond his jurisdiction to Damascus, a whole other city where many Jews lived and where he heard some Christians were beginning to turn some of his people astray and he wanted to stop it. So this is what happens in our story. He leaves Jerusalem one way, but arrives in Damascus completely different. And the thing that happened in between was Jesus. The Lord appeared to him on the road of Damascus as he's riding along a light from heaven flashed. And so bright was this light that it actually knocked Saul off of his high horse. Saul fell to the ground and then he heard the voice. <laughs> And the servants who were with him heard the voice too, which means the voice was not just in Saul's head. No, the voice spoke from heaven and even called him by name. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Saul said, who are you? And the voice said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. I need you to get up and go to the city you're headed to. But wait there. You will be told what to do. The men traveling with Saul were speechless. Saul was temporarily blinded. Which is so, I think, perfect and ironic. For Saul had been spiritually blind, but not realizing it up until that point. He thought he knew who he was and what truth was and who God was. And yet he could not see in reality the truth of God and the glory of God in the face of Christ. He couldn't see what was there all the time right before him. He didn't know that he was blind, but he was and he saw that when God pulled back the curtains, spoke his name, showed him the truth. I think here of Zechariah in the Christmas story, similar kind of thing happened here. Zechariah was an old man. Him and his wife didn't have any children. 
he was a priest and one day he's in the temple doing his prayers and an angel of the Lord appears to him and tells him that him and his wife are going to be with child and that child's going to be great and turn hearts to God and, and prepare the way of the Lord. That child would be John the Baptist. But at first, Zechariah, when he hears this from God, he doesn't believe God. It seems impossible to him. He said, my wife is old and we're beyond childbearing years. And, and the angel said to him, no, your wife is going to give birth. And Zechariah, because you didn't believe, you won't be able to speak until that child is born. Took away his voice. So in that story, you see, God temporarily took away Zechariah's voice as a sign. Here, what do we see with Saul? God temporarily takes away this man's sight as a sign for a time to say, hey man, this is real. And so on the road to Damascus, the Lord, you see, is appearing to Saul in glory. A bright light from heaven shines. Jesus reveals to Saul that he is indeed the risen Lord. He's the one speaking to him. And so Saul is finally able to see the truth and the glory of Christ. But the Lord takes away his physical sight for a few days. Where Saul is suddenly now dependent on others. And he is sitting there in darkness thinking about you know, what he had been and how wrong he had been. And then after those three days, a knock on his door, and it's a guy named Ananias who he had gone to Damascus to arrest. Ananias is now in the room, but there to help him. Ananias, filled with the Holy Spirit, laid hands on him and prayed for him, and it says something like scales came off of Saul's eyes and he could see. But so much better than he could before. Because again, it's like me opening those curtains. And what was once darkness is now light. Saul could see what always was, but that he couldn't see before. He could see the world now and new. He could see God as God really was. He could see himself for who he really was. He could see Christ for what he did. The Lord had done this miracle in him and it changed him forever. He was one way and, <coughs> and now he is completely different. The Lord had opened his eyes and he would no longer have to walk in darkness. From now on he would walk in the light of the Lord. You know the hymn, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I can see. In three days, Saul would go from being a persecutor of Christians to its leading evangelist. <clears throat> The Lord would change his name to Paul because he was now a new man and he had a new purpose and mission and identity. 
If you and I ever begin to think that a person in our life, a friend, a family member, a loved one, oh, that person will never change. They're stubborn, hard-hearted, and they're just not open to Christ. And maybe that has been our experience for a long time of them. But whenever we begin to think a person can never change or is too far gone or beyond the grace of God, we need to remember this story of what God did in Saul. Now, I want to highlight a few key points from this chapter for you to think about today. Number one, notice verse two, where it says that the, excuse me, that the Christians back then were called the followers of the way. That's what it says. The way. It says that Saul had gotten permission to go to Damascus to arrest the followers of the way. Now, we believe that this is what the early church called itself in those early days. The name Christian really didn't take off until much, much later. Followers of the way was the original name of this group. (laughs) And I just like this, and I wanted to mention that. Because when Jesus was alive, he was always doing what? Inviting people to follow him. The word follow was important. It was an invitation to walk in his steps, to learn from him, to trust in him, to do as he did. And Jesus also taught his disciples in John 14 verse 6 uh, that he was the way. The truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through Him. And so I think that the early church took two of the things that Jesus said and put them together to define who they were. They were followers of the way. Jesus being the way. The way to heaven because we are all sinners and only in him are we made righteous, not of our own good works, but only faith in him and his good work on the cross. We are followers of the way, followers of the way that he taught us to live in the Sermon on the Mount and the greatest command to love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. He, we're followers of the way. He taught us how to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We are followers of how to do the will of God as we see Him living out the will of the Father. We learn what it means to follow the way and make the will of God our practice. He is our life, what we know to be true. He is our Lord in whom we serve and worship and obey now. (laughs) We believe in him, but we are also to follow him. This implies we are on the move. We're not stagnant in our faith. We haven't arrived. We are following Jesus. We aren't just people who sit in church, but people who daily get up and walk in the steps of our Lord, who put his words into practice, who continue to learn more about him and from him. You know, I would ask you this question today for you to examine and think about your life. Do you believe in Jesus? And, and do you follow him? Are you ready to trust in him, to find your whole new life 
in Him. Find your purpose and your direction from Him. Because we aren't just Christians. We are followers of the way. Second thing I just wanted to draw your attention to is that it mentions that after Saul had this encounter with Jesus on the road, he was blinded for three days and did not eat or drink anything. That meant that he was fasting, which meant that he was broken by his life and repentant. That's what did not eat or drink for three days meant. That Saul was sitting in his darkness for three days, reflecting on his life and how he could have got it so wrong about Jesus. How did that happen? He was broken and repentant. Just like Jonah in the whale for three days. The Lord delayed Ananias for three days until Saul had done that deep soul work, that heart work, that searching God work, that alone with God in the darkness stuff that's got to get out. And I know that the Lord not only gives us mountaintop experiences, but also he gives us these deep valleys, these few days to wrestle with things, these few days to really examine our heart, right? You know, each one of those is important. Sometimes in our life, we don't need a mountaintop experience. We need a deep valley. We need to stop for a minute and be still and and look in the mirror and say, man, how did I get here? What's going on with me? Look at this in my life that shouldn't be this way. Sometimes we need to sorrow a bit over our past and our choices. And, and I would think that Saul here felt remorse in those three days. Looking and saying, man, I hurt a lot of people. I even killed, I arrested people who were right. His life had caused, his choices had affected, his actions had caused pain. And he had lived as a Pharisee trying to get it so perfect and right, and yet he had been so wrong, and he's realizing that. It's humbling. But also for a Pharisee, that is the worst, because you wanted to please God with your life. You were living, you were, you were in that moment, Saul would have been realizing, I was actually fighting against God when I thought I was fighting for him. Jesus said to him, why are you persecuting me? The things you are doing to these people, it's against me, Saul. Saul is now seeing the truth of his life. He's now counting the cost of what's ahead of him. He knows what this means. If he believes in this Jesus now, he is letting go. He's surrendering in those few days. I think in the, the heart is being changed. He is switching teams. He is putting his faith now in Christ. I think Saul sitting in darkness for three days, like Jacob wrestling with God in the Old Testament, is, is him being purged of all that was. And after those three days, he raises from the tomb to a new life in Jesus Christ. He's going to be a brand new man. Which leads to my third point, and that is Ananias. 
What a beautiful and faith-filled man that was. Jesus not only speaks in this chapter to Saul, um, but he also speaks to Ananias. Uh, And Ananias was a Jew, but also a believer in Jesus. And he was one of those that Saul had come to Damascus to arrest. But Jesus speaks to him in a vision and tells Ananias to go to Saul, tells him what exact street to go to, and tells him that Saul is there praying in that house, and he is receiving a vision, learning that a man named Ananias is going to come lay hands on him to receive his sight. So what we see here is kind of just like the previous week with the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, that God is working, Jesus is working on both of them at the exact same time and in preparing them for this encounter. And Ananias is scared at first to do what Jesus wants him to do because he had only heard the reports about Saul. And, and so he wanted to get as far away from Saul as possible. Ananias, though, was being asked here by Jesus to trust the Lord, to believe this vision, and to believe this impossible thought that the murderous Saul was going to be God's chosen instrument to reach the Gentiles. That's a crazy thought. You know, Ananias, though, took Jesus at his word. He goes to the house, he enters it, he places his hands on Saul, and then this is what I want us to see about him. And this is really cool. He says something to Saul that Jesus never told him to say, but Ananias does it on his own, and it's beautiful. He said, brother Saul. Brother. A term of affection and love. A term of belonging and accepting. A term of Saul, we're one together. Ananias uses the word brother to extend to his enemy the love of Christ and the forgiveness of Christ. This man had hurt and killed many of his friends, but Ananias is going to him in the love and mercy of Christ. And he lays his hands on his enemy. And the first words out of his mouth are, You are my brother. Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, Ananias said, has sent me that you might see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And in that moment, it says scales fell off of Saul's eyes and he was able to see and he was baptized and he spent the next several days with the disciples in Damascus and he began to preach that Jesus is the Son of God. The restoring of our relationship with God in Christ will immediately restore our relationship with others. We will start to love again. His love and grace and mercy for us causes us to show the same to our enemies. We are able to call brothers who previously we had not because we share in the same salvation and the same Lord and the same love of the Father. Saul was welcomed into the fellowship. An enemy now became a brother. I love that. And then the last thing I wanted to point out from our chapter is how it happened and how it still happens today. Saul was uh, on his way one place, but Jesus met him on the road. It wasn't that Saul just had a change of heart. No, he had an encounter 
with the risen Lord. And that is what changed him. A light came from heaven in his case. A voice spoke his name, Saul, Saul. He sat in a pit of darkness for three days, stricken with temporary blindness. He was humbled by the love of Ananias, who came to him and called him brother after everything he had done. And Jesus, in that whole process, just opened his eyes to the truth and called him to serve, to not just believe, but Saul was given also a mission to now live for Christ, to share Christ. Jesus met Saul on that road. He was one way, now he is completely different, and the reason was Jesus. I asked four different people about how it happened for them. You know, what is their story? Their Damascus Road experience. How did they come to see the truth of Christ? How did it happen for them? I asked four different people. And so I want to end this sermon by just sharing their four stories. I asked them to sum it up in a half dozen sentences or so. And I want to read for you what they gave to me. I first asked Tracy Hernandez. And she said this. When I found myself in that prayer meeting, clearly I was still just thinking of myself. Even though we had moved to South Dakota to try to see what all this God stuff was about, I was clueless. I had no idea what I was really even looking for until God in his mercy just showed himself to me. It was sudden and it was so far beyond anything I ever imagined. All I could do was cry. The peace, the purpose, the security, the love. Far beyond anything I could have imagined was possible. And it was surrounding me from every side. If I could describe what it was like, she said, I would say one minute I couldn't see and I couldn't understand. And then suddenly I could. I was far from God then suddenly I was completely surrounded by him. And from that point on, I wanted to live for him, not me. He was absolutely everything I had been searching for before I understood it. I could never be the same. Next, I asked Jorge Zuniga, and he wrote this to me. At a young age, I learned to look after myself and my brothers and take the world head on. I learned to pursue pleasure and to follow my impulses. I lived my life doing what expedient, lying, cheating, stealing, manipulating, always trying not to get caught. I often thought of God and religion in general as just a convenient lie designed to keep humans from destroying each other. I believed there was no such thing as unconditional love. Every night before going to bed, I heard a voice inside of my head telling me, though, otherwise. I had vivid dreams of a, of a blonde lady fall, falling in love with me in, in paradise. And in my dreams, I had food and love and peace. But at that time, my reality was a lot different. My life was a mix of hunger, chaos, and mayhem. Then I found the blonde lady, and as you know, he married her. She's with us. <laughs> and she taught me about love and paradise. 
Blessing after blessing. And that voice in my head got stronger and stronger. All the blessings started to pile up to the point that it was overwhelming. And at that point, I had to surrender to the unconditional love that God was giving to me. I surrender to him not by fear, but by gratitude. Now all I can think about is how I can pay him back for giving me more than I could ever deserve. Third, I asked Skipper Russell, and he wrote this. When I was living a criminal lifestyle, I didn't think I was afraid of anything. And looking back now, I know that it was just like the song Amazing Grace, which says, grace that taught my heart to fear. I thank God for that. When I got the phone call telling me that the law kicked in with the door of my supplier and boss, I was instantly afraid for my safety and freedom. I remember hanging up the phone and falling in my knees and, and asking Jesus to take control of my life because all I seemed to do was mess it up. I continued to pray and ask for help over the next few months as more and more of the people I called friends were arrested. I remember feeling like I had to be next and begging him to save me. As I begged, I heard the most reassuring, calming, and familiar voice. But it was also unrecognizable and different at the same time. But he said to me, start over and be honest with yourself and every, everyone else in everything you do. I knew at that moment that I was hearing the voice of Christ and that I wanted to live a life that honored and glorified him. And I was no longer afraid to go to prison because I knew he'd be there too. But by being honest with myself, I recognized that I had a problem and began to work on getting sober and learning more about Christ and what it means to have a relationship with him. It's been quite the difficult journey, but has also been so rewarding. Finally, I asked my father-in-law. And I wonder, have you ever asked your family, what's their story? I had only previously heard pieces, but was so blessed to read what my father-in-law wrote me. Uh, me and Carrie read it together on Wednesday, and both were just crying as we, as we read his story. But this is what he said. He said, I was brought up in church and accepted the Lord when I was around 11 years old. As I grew older, I drifted away from my Christian upbringing. But the time I was in high school, I rarely attended church. After being discharged from the Navy, I played with a couple of rock bands. We played all around Southern Ohio, and in the income became a healthy, welcome addition to my budget. I met Goldie during this time, and we were married in 1970. Then Carrie entered our life, and then later Kimberly. Our family was very important to Goldie and I, and I started to realize the lifestyle that I was living and the problems that are associated with being in a group. And I had financial obligations and band money that helped us meet those needs. But the lifestyle was killing me. I remember being in the club one night and looking around at what I had associated my life and myself with. And I silently said a prayer to God. Please get me out of this mess. 
I didn't know it at the time, but the outreach team at the Nazarene Church had Goldie and I in their sights. My sister Mary and her husband Mark were part of a team that was praying at the altar for people they were hoping to reach. And their prayers got to us before I could. I remember my grandma Peratt visiting my mom and dad around this time. And we went out one Sunday afternoon to spend time with them. She was, uh, my mom was a wonderful Christian lady. And during our time there, somehow the conversation turned to how the Lord had blessed her life. And after her witness, I knew I had to accept the Lord again as my Savior. I turned to Goldie and said, want to go to church tonight? And she said, yes. I couldn't tell you what the preacher's sermon was that night. All I was waiting for was the altar call. Goldie and I both accepted the Lord as our Lord and Savior that night. We were putting our trust in Him. And He provided our needs without the band income. And then, I love it, he writes this right at the end. Signed, Richard Miller, 53 years married, 50 years a Christian. Praise the Lord, he says. I just read for you four stories. And then we also talked about Saul and his story. What's your story? How and when did Jesus speak to your heart? How is he maybe even doing that even today? How he loves us. Wants to open our eyes. Show us a brand new world. One that's living for him. One that's full of his goodness and joy and love and peace. Forgiveness of sins and salvation. He came for you. Won't you open your life to him? Have a wonderful Sunday.